Hi, crime junkies. It's Ashley here. And you all know how ready I am at any moment to drop down the rabbit holes of mysterious cases to look for answers. And there's actually one right now that I cannot stop spiraling about with more rabbit holes than I can count. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra begins investigating Doug Wag Jr.'s mysterious death after he was found struck on a strip of railroad tracks. But the more Delia has dug into this case, the stranger things have gotten. And you guys, there is truly so much going on. A string of mysterious deaths, a bank robbery gone wrong, conspiracy, corruption, and it may all be connected. You can binge all of Counterclock Season 6 right now in the Crime Junkie Fan Club, or you can listen to new episodes weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Home is your creative canvas, an expression of your unique style. Only Wayfair has everything you need to bring your vision to life. It's the place to shop for everything home, from sofas and beds to dining sets and decor. Wayfair makes it easy with fast and free shipping, even on the big stuff. They'll even help you set it up. Our house is full of Wayfair finds, from wall art to rugs to vases and more. Our go-to is always Wayfair. Every style is welcome in the Waverhood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R.com. Wayfair. Every style, every home. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crime Junkie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Crime Junkie. Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And you guys, I thought, what better way to come back after kind of not regular episodes with one of the most bizarre cases I have come across in a long time. One so twisty, it's going to make your head spin. I am not kidding. But I actually touched on this case briefly. It was like late 2020, maybe early 2021 in our fan club. Because along with like full regular episodes every month, sometimes Britt and I will do like bonuses and talk about things that other people the true crime space are talking about. So like when Unsolved Mysteries came back, we were like, okay, let's like dive in. And of course, one thing I should know by now is that the story you get on TV is never the full thing. And I just got drawn into this particular episode, Lady in the Lake, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And sure enough, when you do even like the most like cursory Google search, you'll find more info, which I brought up back then. But I still couldn't let this one go. So recently I did a true deep dive. And honestly, I think I broke my brain. (laughs) If you are into the stories where my voice gets really high pitched and I get really worked up and I spin myself into a web, this one is going to have you tangled up with me. This is the story of the mysterious death of Joanne Matuk Romaine.
It's a cold night in Michigan on January 12, 2010. 20-something Michelle Romaine is at home with her two other grown siblings, and since it's after nine, things in the house are kind of like winding down for the night. They're just waiting for their mom to get home before they fully lock up and call it a night. Now, you see, earlier, their mom, Joanne, had dropped her son off, Michael, and then went to go get gas. And that was a couple of hours ago, but they figured she probably went to church, maybe she ran some errands, whatever. So when Michelle sees headlights in the front window, she assumes that it's her mom. But when she peeks out of the window, her heart sinks because it's actually the police. When she opens the door, Michelle's fears only grow because according to what she told producers of Unsolved Mysteries for an episode called Lady in the Lake, the officer immediately confronts her with some troubling news. He says that they found her mom's car abandoned in the church parking lot and he asks Michelle if her mom is missing. Now what was fear turns a bit into confusion. No, they hadn't reported their mom missing. They had just seen her, what, like a couple of hours ago? And Michelle's sister is paying attention to what's going on by now, and she looks down at her phone. It is 9.24. She knows that Joanne dropped her youngest Michael off at home at 6, so it's been like three and a half hours. Ashley, is this the first story we've ever covered where the police are actually so, like, on top of everything that they know someone is missing before the family even does? Maybe, but there's actually something else confusing to Michelle. So the car that they found in this church parking lot, it's a silver Lexus that her mom was driving that night. You see, that car is registered to Michelle. So she's wondering, like, how did police know to come looking for Joanne? Shouldn't they have been? Right. They should be looking for her. Right. Now, in that moment, it didn't matter too much to Michelle. She knew that her mom was driving the car that night and her mom wasn't home. So she needed to figure out what was going on. So she and her sister, along with their uncle John, all got together and drove to the church where Joanne's car was parked. Now, they probably expected to see a pretty empty parking lot. You know, Joanne's car for sure, maybe a cop car next to it with an officer who ran the plates, if that even. Because, like, what's the officer going to do just hanging around it? But when they pull up, it's like a little bit after 10 p.m., and what they actually saw made all of their jaws drop to the floor. But it was a full-on crime scene. We're talking taped off, officers crawling all over the place, literally helicopters in the air, searching Lake St. Clair across the street from the church. It was unreal. Wait, what am I missing? I mean, we've covered hundreds of stories now, and in nearly every single one, the police are telling the family they have to wait, I mean, 24, 48, sometimes 72 hours to even report a loved one missing. And in Michigan, they have helicopters out within, what, three hours? Well, police on the scene are telling Michelle that there's a reason for the urgency. They have a reason to believe that Joanne took her own life, they say. And they're telling them all of this, this is this is not searching for a missing person. This is a rescue effort. Okay, but how do they know that? Like, they can't have taken, like, a mental history on her at this point. No, they don't. And honestly, a mental history wouldn't have led them to this conclusion. Joanne had no history of depression or any mental illnesses. What police say is that when the officer came across her abandoned car and ran the plates or whatever, he noticed that there was also a purse still inside. But more concerning, he saw footprints in the snow, small high-heeled prints leading from the car out to the lake. And when he followed the prints right up to the water, he then saw this area where it looked like someone had kind of like sat down and slid down this concrete wall to the next level, slid down again, like right into the water. So they were convinced then and there that Joanne had gone into the water and they needed to find her. And I'm sure everyone thought they stood a good chance. The water was 
like super shallow. Literally, Joanne would have had to walk almost two football fields out into the water before the water even came above her less than five foot frame. And the water's pretty clear. Joanne was wearing all black that night, so against the icy blue, she should stand out. But more than anything, a lot of the lake was frozen over, so they should be able to look for holes or disturbances in the ice, and that should be a dead giveaway. So along with the helicopters, police brought in water search and rescue teams, and for the next several hours, they looked and looked and looked, but there wasn't a single sign of Joanne. Not even one additional clue. So by 4 a.m., the helicopters were called off and Joanne's car was towed to the police station for processing. Now, the family's natural reaction is, well, what now? Because, you know, in their minds, like she clearly didn't go into the lake like police originally thought. So then what happened to her? Maybe someone else was involved. But they say that there was no real next move from police. They stuck to their guns. She went into the water. We just haven't found her yet. But they say, you know, maybe the current took her body out further and she'll likely wash up sometime in the next couple of days. So that's the next step. What just wait for a body? I mean, that's pretty much what they tell the family to do. But the family can't just sit around and do nothing. This makes zero sense to them. Joanne was not suicidal. And if something had snapped in her, in no world did they think that she would take her life in that way. Yeah, I was actually going to point that out. Like when you said she's what, like a football field into the water even? Two football fields. Okay, my point exactly. Two football fields into like this frigid water before she's even able to submerge herself. Like that's super odd, right? I mean, I certainly think so. Again, in January, it is freaking freezing. And remember what I had said before, after she dropped her son off that night, she was going to get gas to fill up her car. She didn't need to fill it up to make that trip to the church parking lot if her plan was just to pray and then get into the water. And actually, the fact that she was even going to church that night was all the more reason for them to think that she didn't do this to herself. Everyone who knew Joanne said she was a devout Catholic. And taking one's own life in that religion is a sin. They that Joanne would never, ever do that. Now, this is all too bizarre already. But what the family also knows and something that they have stressed to police is that Joanne was actually afraid for her life in the weeks leading up to her disappearance. She talked about being followed, about her mail being tampered with, and someone potentially listening in on her phone calls. So now that Joanne is actually gone, her family is confident that she wasn't just paranoid. Her fears were founded, and now the family knows something is really not right here. So according to reporting by Scott M. Bernstein that he did for a three-part series in the Gross Point News. In the very first hours and days after Joanne went missing, the family all got together and they started making their list of suspects. If Joanne didn't kill herself, there is someone involved in her disappearance. So who could that be? And for a suburban mother of three, that list is longer than you might think. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams, or timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. 
rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. It's such a nice perk to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places. But working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anyone else. And that's been great for me especially because these last few months, I've been doing a lot of on-the-ground reporting with our team from northern Wisconsin to Utah to the middle of nowhere, Indiana. No matter where I go, I'm able to stream, make calls, or get those case-altering DMs from sources, which that's my favorite part. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds, according to analysis by Ookla of Speedtest Intelligence Data Q3 2023. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. In the research material I have come across, there are three main people the family wondered about early on when Joanne first went missing. One was Joanne's husband, who she had been separated from for almost five years at this point. This was her kid's father. Two was her brother, John Matuk, and the people he was connected to. Now, John was actually the one who drove his two nieces to the church parking lot that night Joanne went missing. And three was a cousin Joanne had a tumultuous relationship with named Tim Matuk. Now, Joanne's ex, David, doesn't have a reputation for being a violent man. But the three kids who lived in the Romaine house with David and Joanne when they were together knew that the couple had a reputation for fighting, like a lot. David would travel a lot for work. Joanne suspected infidelity. And so when he was home, it was like bickering nonstop. It was never ending. So the couple ended up separating. And whether it started before or after the separation, I don't exactly know. But at some point, David was rumored to have started up with Joanne's best friend, which is not a great look. And we've seen less complicated love trials end up in tragedy. And there's also the money of it all. A divorce would have been costly for David. And he and Joanne were in the middle of this legal battle. Basically, they were suing some contract workers over black mold that was found on one of their properties. And though they were still ways out from closure on that case, if they won, the damages would be in the ballpark of like a million dollars. Now, if Joanne was around, she'd get half. If she wasn't, the whole thing would go to David. But again, we've seen people kill for less. Right. But, you know, when they're making this list, that's all they have. A bad relationship. He's better off financially. Does this mean something? Maybe. But they needed police to look into him more. So they write down the next name on their list. John Matuk. Now, it's not so much that they thought John did something directly to Joanne. Of the five Matuk siblings, John and Joanne were probably the closest at the time she went missing. But John had fallen on some tough times that could have made him a target for some dangerous people. Like there was once a time when John was doing ultra well. Like he was a known businessman in town, made tons of money. He was making those like 40 under 40 lists. But when business went south, John started borrowing money, doing a little gambling and getting tied up with the wrong people. In that article, Scott 
Scott Bernstein wrote, someone who was with the family in those critical hours when they were brainstorming possibilities said, quote, they took out a legal pad and literally made a list of all the people who John Matuk owed money to and may have been upset enough to want to do him harm by hurting someone close to him, end quote. One of those people was a man named Anthony Pippia. According to one or more Bernstein's sources, Anthony was a bookmaker who John owed a decent amount of money to. And Anthony's operation may have been loosely connected to a mob operation out of Detroit. And I mean, making someone disappear seems like a mobster MO to me. Yeah, and I agree. This looks like a good angle to go down. But here's the thing. I can't totally wrap my head around this idea that like if you're hurting someone's loved one to send a message, like wouldn't it be important that it's super clear that there was a message and like who it was from? Like unless John is just playing this ultra coy, he seems to be like, well, it's possible that someone did this, but I don't know who. Either way, again, it is just a name on a list for now. And then there's one more name that the family adds, Tim Matuk, Joanne's cousin. Now, this is a name that is specifically sticking out to Michelle as more than just a hunch, because in the weeks leading up to her mom's disappearance, Joanne specifically told her, if something happens to me, look to Tim. Uh, I feel like we should start there. Does she know why her mom said that? Well, it happened after one particular call Joanne had with Tim leading up to her going missing. But to understand the call, I need to give you a little bit of a backstory. You see, Joanne's parents had been really successful. Like They had this local wine shop in town that did super well. They were into real estate. So by 1994, when both parents had passed, there was like a $20 million inheritance that was up for grabs. And I say up for grabs, but there was a will and it was supposed to be doled out evenly among the five kids. But money, especially inheritance money, Britt, I don't know what it does to people, but it makes them lose their GD minds. Oh my God, you do not need to tell me twice. <laughs> yeah, and the Matuk family was no exception. Two of the five kids, Bill and Rosemary, they were the oldest, were the ones who kept running the wine store. And they were basically accused of taking more money like than their fair share. And this got so bad, literally the siblings weren't talking to one another. And in 1998, Joanne and John actually filed suit against the estate. And within a couple of years, they won and were each paid like $600,000 in back payments. Of course, it's not like that magically fixed the damage that had occurred over the last six years. The family was still very much divided. But this whole time, John and Joanne were kind of on the same team, if you will. Again, they've always been super close. And when he started having business troubles and legal troubles, like it wasn't just gambling, he had also gotten busted for a check kiting scheme. It seemed like Joanne blamed her cousin Tim or maybe Tim and her brother Bill for John's problems. Okay, I guess I don't get it. I don't fully get it either, but it's important to know that at the time, Tim was a police officer. So it's possible that she thought he was maybe feeding information or was the reason he got busted. Again, I I don't know the specifics. I just know she had this feeling and John shared that feeling as well. Now, it's never been proven that Tim was connected or Bill was connected to anything John did or got in trouble for. And Tim wholly denies it as well as Bill. Denies it now, denied it then which was actually the reason Tim called Joanne before she went missing. So apparently for a while, like the year before she even went missing, she was telling people she was scared of Tim. Scott Bernstein reported, quote, Matuk Romaine's children say that when they were growing up, their mom did her best to keep them away from Tim Matuk, calling him sick and depraved, end quote. But no one knows exactly why. It seemed like she was fine telling everyone she was scared or she didn't like him or was uncomfortable with him, but wouldn't actually give anyone specifics. 
Her children feel like she did this because she was trying to protect them, but it doesn't seem like anyone else knows either. Or at least if there was a reason that she told people, it's never been officially reported. But things seem to come to a head in late 2009 and early 2010. That is when Joanne, after years of not speaking to her brother Bill, went down to his wine store, and according to him, she told him to stay away from Tim, that he was causing problems for John, Tim's bad news. And so then that's when Tim calls Joanne, and he says, he's like, hey, stop, I didn't do anything. You're not making sense. Stop spreading rumors about me and saying that I'm the reason John has all these problems. And according to Tim, that was the extent of the call. But Michelle remembers that call differently. She couldn't hear Tim's side of it, but she was there with her mother when she took the call. And she told Unsolved Mysteries that her mom was screaming, telling Tim to leave her and her family alone. And she told Tim to never call her again before hanging up on him. And she said it was in that moment that Joanne turned to her and said, if something happens to me, look to Tim. Now, there was one more incident that came to Michelle's mind right away, something she just couldn't shake. She said that she had drove her mom one other time back to the wine store to see her brother, Bill. Now, they were dropping in unannounced and Joanne went in alone. Michelle says that when she came back out, she was terrified. Michelle told Scott Bernstein, quote, She came out of that store looking like she'd seen a ghost. Whatever she saw, whatever she heard, whatever she was told in there, it spooked her to the core and in her mind confirmed her belief that she was in danger. When she got back to the car, she wanted me to take her immediately to church. She thought she could pray it away, end quote. So knowing all of this, Tim makes the family's list. But who that list goes to is a whole nother question. Almost as soon as the search was done, Gross Point Farms Police, which was the responding agency based on where Joanne's car was found, wanted to transfer her case to the Gross Point Woods Police because they said, well, you know, we're saying it's suicide and she lived in Woods territory, so your problem now. Wait, are they really not exploring any other options besides suicide? Like, I get that's the main theory or whatever, but you said they took her car for processing, so I assumed they were going to, I don't know, process it for evidence or something and see what that tells them? Well, I don't know if they're looking into any other theories. Honestly, it seems like no. But one of the departments is at least processing the evidence-ish. They dusted the car for prints and didn't find any usable ones that didn't belong to Joanne or her family. But this is another thing that gives the family like giant WTF moments because they're like, okay, you didn't actually take any prints from us to compare. My mom's not here, so I know you don't have her prints. None of us have government jobs. So what are you comparing these prints to? Like, how are you coming to this conclusion? Seriously. And also, there was an investigative reporter turned PI who was interviewed by reporter Karen Drew for Click on Detroit. And he says that the type of material inside the car isn't even conducive to getting fingerprints lifted using like the normal method with like dust and stuff like that. He said you'd have to fume inside with super glue and take photographs, which was never done. I mean, maybe they were preserving it for DNA instead. Like, I know it can be the trade-off sometimes. You get prints or DNA because testing for one ruins your chances of getting the results on the other. Like, swabbing for DNA would smudge the prints, but using glue or even fingerprint dust would disrupt the DNA. Right, but they didn't do DNA. Specifically because they kept telling the family that there was nothing to point to signs of foul play, so nothing to warrant any criminal investigation like that. Okay, what about her purse? I mean, you said the first officer on the scene saw her purse in the car. Was there anything missing out of it? Did they, I don't know, process the purse at all? So they did at least look at it to try and see if anything was missing. You know, I would be looking at it to see if it was like a robbery or something. And they said that everything normal was in there except for her keys and her cell phone. But again, 
Other stuff was in there, her wallet was in there, and $1,500 according to a Marie Claire article by Kristen Igo. And police said that all the straps on her purse were intact, so they didn't consider a robbery to be any kind of motive. But when her family saw the purse, they disagreed. Apparently, it was like almost brand new and had these kind of like ruffles all over the front, and one of them was torn. Now, Michelle swears it wasn't like that before, so to her, it shows her signs of some kind of struggle. But to police, they're like, struggle over what? Again, the money is there. Your mom could have ripped her purse and you didn't know. If anything, her purse was even more of a reason for the police to stick to their guns. They kept insisting. Joanne took her own life. She is going to show up in the water. And 70 days after she first went missing, they were right. But finally finding Joanne didn't bring closure. It only opened a can of worms and deepened the mystery as to what happened that cold January night. It's a beautiful moment. Your baby is taking their first steps. And then comes the not-so-beautiful moment. Blowout, diaper leakage, messy stuff where you really don't want it. Thankfully, this can all be avoided with a parent's must-have diaper, Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 have up to 100% leak-free fit. The blowout barrier in the back helps prevent leaks no matter how active, on-the-go, or wild your baby moves. Josie pretty much skipped crawling, and the girl is now full-on running, and Pampers Cruisers 360 has saved me from some very massive, messy situations. So as soon as your baby starts standing or walking, get them in Pampers Cruisers 360. Because unlike other diapers, there are no diaper tabs. Instead, they have a stretchy 360-degree waistband that you can pull on so easily. Add Pampers Cruisers 360 and free and gentle wipes to your cart or pick them up at your local grocery store or big box store. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Search for hidden objects from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris and customize your very own luxurious estate island. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. On March 20th, 2010, fishermen up in Amherstburg, Ontario, found a body floating in the Detroit River. Is that connected to Lake St. Clair, where police say Joanne went into the water? Yeah, it is. So it makes sense that her body could have ended up there. Well, hold your horses. I told you nothing about this case makes sense. So Canadian authorities pull the body out of the water. She is fully clothed in all black, just like Joanne was. Same height and build, so it's pretty easy to figure out what department they need to call. 
Now, despite the fact that Gross Point Woods has taken over the case by this point, Gross Point Farms detectives are the ones that are sent up there. According to more of Scott Bernstein's reporting for Gross Point News, the Canadian authorities said that the detectives were quick to tell them Joanne suffered from mental health issues and no foul play was suspected. But you already said that she had no history. Like, where are they getting this from? Well, later they would deny saying that at all. And basically they were just like, oh, well, everyone was saying she was so paranoid before she died. So that's probably what we relayed. Like she was under duress. Either way, the Canadian authorities do an autopsy and they rule Joanne's death a drowning. Her body is then transported back to Michigan where another autopsy is done. This autopsy concludes the same findings, but makes an additional note that the death is more than likely a suicide because there was no other trauma to her body that would suggest foul play. So police feel like they finally have the missing piece to their puzzle. They can inform the family that Joanne has been found. All of their suspicions have been confirmed, and that's that. A tragic case, yes, but really nothing more. But Joanne's family absolutely does not buy it. First of all, like you had pointed out earlier, yes, the waterways were connected, so technically it made sense that Joanne could end up where she was found, which was like 35 miles away from where they said she went into the water. But remember what I said about the search that night that she went missing? There was no current. No one can explain how her body would have moved there. If it didn't move that night, they should have found her. But they didn't find her, which seems to suggest that the body had moved that night, but it couldn't move that night because the water wasn't moving. So like, how does that work? And there is your high pitched. (laughs) I am in a circle Uh, of what is going on. Right. This is just the beginning. But like, that doesn't make sense, right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. And I was also thinking about how much ice would have been on the lake. Like that could have slowed a current. Like, Uh yeah, like a body couldn't. This is like a crass visual, but just bump up against the ice and not move. It would just kind of get stuck there, right? Yeah. And okay, so even more than all of that, like if you want to say, okay, she didn't move to your point, like she got caught in the ice, whatever. If you want to say that this massive search effort missed her somehow, again, one that the search team calls like their most extensive search ever, then you can say, okay, maybe she went to the bottom of the lake. Maybe she wasn't floating. Okay, fine. Then at the bottom, she eventually would have had to move 35 miles by water currents being like drug across the bottom of this lake. But when she's found, her clothes and her shoes were in pretty much perfect condition. Like no scuff marks, no drag marks. No tears, no rips, nothing. Which everyone says would be almost impossible. And again, if you want to say, well, weird stuff happens, maybe her feet were floating or whatever. Okay, then riddle me this. She was in these like four inch heels. And remember the way they're saying she got into the water, she like scoots down these two concrete embankments to get in there. She has to basically walk two football fields out into the water. And it's like a gravelly bottom. I'm going to say, you and I grew up like swimming in lakes and ponds and rivers. Like this is not a concrete pool bottom. Like it's murky and difficult in bare feet in the summer. We're talking like sub-zero water in four inch heels. Well, yeah. I mean, not only do I think she'd be falling all over the place, but like there's rocks and stuff at the bottom. So again, even if if you're going to say she floated 35 miles and her her feet didn't touch anything, that's why there's no scuff marks. Surely there's getting out there. Yes. Would have scuffed her shoes. Yeah, you got to be kidding me. There's like no world in which I can make this make sense. And while we're at it, let me tell you something else they find on Joanne that doesn't make any sense. They find her keys. Now, remember, those keys were missing from her purse. So at first glance, maybe this is not super weird. Right. Except Joanne's keys 
had already been returned to the family before her body was found. Wait, I'm confused. As you should be. And honestly, it was confusing for Michelle when the keys showed up in the first place. Karen Drew reported that the day after Joanne went missing, her keys showed up at the police station, which was awfully convenient. And more convenient is that no one knows how they got to the station, who had possession of them, who brought them by, nothing. I mean, did one of the family members bring, like, the spare set so police could move the car and stuff? No, and here's how they know this. I'm telling you, this case is a total mindfuck, and I am just getting started, so stay with me. So police say that the keys magically showed up the day after Joanne goes missing. Fine. Well, according to more reporting done by Scott Bernstein, when they're returned to the family in early February, so like a week or two after Joanne goes missing, again, before her body is found, like immediate red flags go up because her daughter Michelle knows that these weren't the keys her mom had with her the night she went missing. You see, they had two sets, a normal set and a spare set. Six weeks before Joanne went missing, she was showing her house, like an open house kind of thing. And during that, her car keys went missing. So she had been using the spare set. Everyone had been using the spare set. They never found the originals. Well, when the keys get returned to her again, early February before the body is found, it's the set that went missing six weeks before. Oh my God, I have literal chills. What? But it makes no sense. Again, between the cops showing up looking for Joanne when Michelle says they should have been looking for her, and then these missing keys showing up, the Romaine family have basically been over the local PD since long before their mom's body was found, and they've already hired their own investigators. But now that Joanne's been found, and Gross Point Departments just want to call this a suicide and close the case, that's when things really start moving for the family. Because her family's like, fine, close it. We're going to file a Freedom of Information Act request to get the records. And they start pulling records of their own related to Joanne's activity before her death. Now, while they're getting these records, they also hire someone to do an independent autopsy at the University of Michigan. Now, we know two autopsies have been done already. It'd be kind of weird to find something different now. But weird is synonymous with this case. Because this autopsy notes two really critical things. One, there were some contusions on her left arm that hadn't been noted before. Now, remember how I said Michelle thought that her mom's purse had been ripped? She says that she always wore it on her left shoulder. So this kind of reinforced for her the idea that someone had potentially grabbed her mom. Now, the second thing found in the autopsy, and this is even more concerning, was that it was found that Joanne died of a dry drowning. Okay, care to explain that? It means there was no water in her lungs. Apparently, this is like super rare. It only happens in like one to two percent of cases. Yeah, I mean, I've heard the term because it's something that happens to little kids in pools sometimes. Like it's kind of like a and there's water and their body freaks out, but you don't necessarily see it right away or know it right away. It's not like a traditional drowning, but no water, Brett. Okay. (laughs) I mean, how did she die? Not only no water, Ashley, that means there's air in her lungs, right? Mm hmm. And I at least am under the impression that air rises to the top of water. So she would be floating, right? She should have been floating that night. Again, this, like we said before, the only way it makes sense for her to end up where she did was to be at the bottom of the lake and then move that way because they didn't find her on the top. But if there's no water in her lungs, there's nothing keeping her underwater. She's full of air. She should have been floating on the top. Okay, okay, okay. Now, Brett, okay, so 
that's already weird. They get this autopsy, which again, is just like reconfirming every fear, every suspicion, every worry that they've had. And when they start getting the reports in, what was a confusing case turns into total mind fuckery. And I can't even just like throw in bits and pieces that seem odd to like piece this together for you. I almost need to re-walk you through that night according to what the official records say. So let's rewind to January 20th, the night Joanne goes missing. Just like the original story started, Joanne drops her son off at their house around 6 and says she's going to go get gas. By 6.25, she was at the gas station and the attendant there said she was totally normal, like friendly, whatever, nothing out of the ordinary. Then they know Joanne went to her normal church for a 7 o'clock prayer service. According to the Lady in the Lake episode, reports show that there were 10 to 15 other people there and witnesses saw Joanne. Now, this is like not a whole church service. It's like a quick prayer thing and everyone's out the door again by like 7.15. At 7.20, one witness hears a car car alarm go off and sees lights flashing. But this only lasts for like 10 to 15 seconds top. So they think it was just a fluke. Maybe someone hit the alarm button instead of the unlock. So they didn't pay much attention to it. Between 725 and 735, the last patron at the church leaves. She was a little nervous because again, she's the last one walking out alone in the dark parking lot. So as she's making her way to her car, she has her eyes darting like from left to right, looking all over the parking lot, being vigilant. But she doesn't see any other cars. Except for Joanne's Lexus, right? No, not even Joanne's Lexus. Wait, but hold up. I... Yeah, no, no, listen, you're trying to process what everyone was at the time. According to witness statements, it seems like her car left and then at some point came back to the parking lot, which doesn't quite fit, right? Right. But let me just keep going because, you know, maybe the witness was wrong. Either way, the car is for sure back in the parking lot by 8.58 because that is when an officer sees Joanne's car all alone in the parking lot and runs the plates. There's nothing sus about what comes up, so he marks no action on this report. Now, this officer makes no notes of any footprints or anything weird that's standing out to him. He just runs the plates, looks good on his way. So he writes no action, but he goes to Joanne's house at like 9.30 or whatever time that was. He does that anyway? No, this officer writes no action and then really takes no action. It's just a car in a parking lot and he's on his way. But someone shows up at the Romaine's house at 924 asking about missing Joanne. Again, from the registration that is tied to Michelle. At 9.30, the U.S. Coast Guard's digital records show that Gross Point Farms contacted them to help with a search. There's also a report listing the official start time of the Gross Point Farms investigation as 9.30 p.m. And at 9.38, the Coast Guard launches crews and they're on scene looking for Joanne by 9.51. Then at 9.58, a different officer comes by the parking lot and runs the Lexus's plates. Not the same guy who did before, totally different officer. And he's the one who says he sees those concerning things, the footprints leading away from the car towards the lake. And so he calls it in. What do you mean he calls it in? Like the Coast Guard is already on the scene. Doesn't make much sense, does it? I I don't even think I understand. Like they're saying something else initially kicked off the investigation. I'm so confused. No, 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 no. They're saying it was a concerned officer who saw the footprints that kicked off their investigation. At 9.58. At 9.58. But they're already searching for her at 9.38. You got it. Uh, no, I do not. How is any of this explained? Honestly, very poorly. According to Karen Drew, who did amazing reporting on this case, literally like won an Emmy for it. 
There is one handwritten report from the Coast Guard that states that they were actually called by the Gross Point Farms police at 1035. So Gross Point Farms stick with that 958 time. They're basically saying everything else has to be a mistake. All the digital records are wrong. Okay. And they're saying that one handwritten report got it correct. And they're saying all the family has it wrong, too. They never showed up at 924 because, according to them, they didn't know anything was wrong then. They say that they showed up much later and Michelle and her sister must have just gotten it all mixed up, which they say, you know, is to be expected when you're getting this, like, traumatizing news that your mom's missing. Except Joanne's family have some digital records of their own that back up their version of events. Between 9.29 and 10.32, they call their mom's cell phone 13 times. In the Gross Point News, it said eight of those 13 calls were before 10 p.m., before the plate was even supposedly run. So why on earth are these grown adults blowing up their mom's phone if they don't know she's missing? I mean, it matches their story perfectly. Cops show up at 924, you talk to them, you find out what's going on, and within five minutes, you're calling your mom over and over again, hoping that this is some kind of horrible mistake. It doesn't work the other way. Right. Because in that scenario, it shows that you're blowing up your mom just because it's 930 and she wasn't home. You call her a bunch of times, and then after police show up at your house, at what they say is 1024, you only make like one or two more calls. Like, how does it make sense? I mean, it doesn't. Yet this is the story everyone's sticking with. I mean, I don't like any of this, but just for the sake of argument, what if you said this was all some terrible clerical error, digital error, human error, error across the board, whatever. The times are wrong. What's important is that they got the search crews out there as soon as they knew a woman was missing. Do the times really even matter that much? Well, I think they do combined with everything else we know. Police looking for Joanne and not Michelle, who, again, the car was really registered to. The missing keys turning up that no one can explain. And what if I told you that there was another missing persons report from that same day, same church parking lot, same lake that got zero attention? That report will change everything you know about this case. And I'm going to have to tell you about that next week. Or you can listen right now if you're in the fan club. Don't forget to come back next week for part two, or you can join our fan club on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com, to listen right now. You can also find all of the source material for this episode on the website as well. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Crime Junkie Podcast. We'll be back next week with part two. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. 
There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.